Thanks for downloading the Fantasy Animation Podcast, brought to you as always by fantasy-animation.org. If you like listening to us discuss all things fantasy animation, you can follow the conversations and help us increase our visibility in a number of ways. To help us grow our audience, look out for fantasy animation posts on social media, from Facebook to Twitter. Give us a like and a share, a comment or a query, anything that gets you involved in the conversations. If you have a favourite podcast episode, tell us about it. If you want us to discuss your favourite film or TV programme, tell us about that too. Finally, if you're an ardent listener to the podcast, or even simply a newcomer to fantasy animation, feel free to give us a star rating and leave us a short review. Every little nudge and extra bit of promotion helps us to move forward and increase our reach. But for now, please do enjoy the show. Alex Sargent and me Chris Holiday. Uh, this week we are journeying up into the skies as we take a look at our second um, right well that name is back again Ghibli Ghibli we'll let our guest in a second solve that riddle yeah. for us um, see previous podcast on the full details of that debate um, we're, we'll be discussing um, Laputa uh, Castle in the Sky a movie that for me at least conjured up lots of ideas of sort of um, of, of, of the issue of the imaginative space of the sky of the role of uh, Jonathan Swift and his influence on Miyazaki. There's lots of things for me to talk about, Chris. Yeah, I've got um, notes on uh, Ghibli's Flying Girls motif, uh, the film's relationship to Disney, and a particular moment in Disney's history. This is another one of my, um, if we're journeying back to previous podcasts, the Hunchback and Notre Dame podcast, when I talked about my MA dissertation, I wrote about a Disney film, Atlantis, The Lost Empire, and its relationship to, to this movie. So, um, yeah, things about that, Flying Girls, a bit of Disney, uh, and also Steampunk. So that's what I'd like to, to probe a little bit. Right, but but luckily it won't just be us two this time because we have um, a special guest with us today, uh, Dr. Robert Maslin, who is um, a lecturer here at uh, the University of Glasgow and also director of the Centre Centre must get this right the Centre for Fantasy Research Centre for Research well, in it's, Fantasy. It's, it's, it's what we're uh, aiming to turn into a centre. Right. At the moment we mainly have an M lit in fantasy, but we're hoping to turn it into the Centre for the Fantasy for Fantasy and the Fantasy. Alex, you're smiling. Look at his yeah. face. What a centre it would be. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm picturing it well, now. Well, I sometimes call it a hub, which sounds much better. More yeah. steampunk. Sure, sure, sure. Well, so Laputa was your choice. Why? What, what is it about this film you wanted to talk about and what is it that speaks to you about the movie? Well, I love the movie, uh, first of all, just because it's a great movie. Uh, it, I used to think it was my favourite Studio Ghibli movie, and that's how you pronounce it, definitely. Oh, all right, it's well, like, we'll uh, no, <laughs> no, this episode. I, I mean, I'm saying that it's not how you pronounce it if it was uh, it in Italian, but it's uh, it's in Japanese. How so would you pronounce it in Italian? Ghibli, I think. So, right, uh, yeah, and it's so, Ghibli. Uh, yeah, it's no, Ghibli. 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 Anyway, it's, it's the first film made by Studio Ghibli. Uh, sometimes, obviously, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Winds is described as the first. But actually, uh, that was the one that, uh, that set up the possibility of there being, if you like, a centre for animation under Miyazaki and ah. uh, uh, Takahata uh, Isao. So um, Nausicaa is kind of like the unofficial, some people, yeah. some scholars sort of 
maybe look at themes in that that Ghibli would go on to then do, exactly. but actually, industrially speaking, it's the it's not that first film. It's, it's exactly the uh, it's, the, the, it's the film which uh, whose success meant it was possible to set up Studio Ghibli. Okay. And uh, Labrador Castle in the Sky is what you could call their uh, um, their declaration of what they intended to do for the rest of their of their yeah. careers, really. But it's interesting though. But but I suppose on that note, it does set in play. Um, certainly when I was watching it and having a sort of familiarity with some of their work but certainly not everything it does seem to there does seem to be a sort of formula or, or things that are in play which hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about but there is a formula that was established by this film that I think a lot of not to say the other films are derivative per se but that there's there's certainly a melting pot of different ideas and motifs and, and character types uh, that maybe then repeat so it'd be interesting to, to sort of prod and probe those as we, as we Absolutely. go Absolutely. It's quite nice to think about the film in terms of things like beginnings. Uh, so one of the things that you'll notice running through it is, uh, uh, is for instance, the, the, the pleasure and delight in inventing things. Mm. Um, in particular, you might uh, remember there's a, a little cottage at the beginning where the, uh, a miner's boy lives all by himself. He's, a, he's an orphan. And, uh, and his, all his dad's drawings are lying around. And these drawings have a very close resemblance in some cases to the drawings of Leonardo da Vinci, who was was inventing flying machines before anyone had even started thinking that there could be uh, heavier than air flying. Um, and uh, and that, that sort of concept that there might be this, uh, this set of possibilities of, of reinventing, if you like, uh, the world, possibly of reinventing animation, is something that drives the kind of a huge ambition of this extraordinary movie, I think. It's really interesting because I, I watching the movie for the first time, and, and I find Ghibli both to say and to experience reasonably hard work to sort of crack a little bit yeah. but uh, but having watched a few of them there is that tension in a lot of Ghibli movies between technology and sort of um, nature yeah. or, the, or the natural or even the spiritual I guess perhaps yes. you know and, and the film is about creation and it's you know and, and, and active fantasy is about mm. creation but it has this odd you know negative portrayal of technology which is another kind of stalwart yeah of the studio, and yet it is an animation that is made with certain technological advances and all that kind of stuff. So that's interwoven within both the, the sort of formula and what you're talking about there, Robert. Yeah, the negative uh, um, relationship with, with technology uh, runs right through Miyazaki's work, uh, completely in tandem with an utter delight and joy in technology, both of which are fused into the notion of aviation and flying. And most obviously, you can think about uh, um, something like The Wind Rises, which is his, his final film as far as we know, because he's had about six, TBC, yeah, possibly about six final films so far, um, of which we'll talk maybe later. Um, but in that film, obviously, he, he explores uh, the experiences of uh, a man who is responsible for developing the Japanese Zero, which Miyazaki's uh, father was involved in developing as well. Uh, and the Japanese Zero was both a magnificent flying machine and also an appalling killing machine. And this notion that uh, the same uh, huge inventiveness and excitement and energy can go equally into acts of creation and acts of uh, horrific destruction uh -huh. is something that drives the whole of the Miyazaki oeuvre. Which is it's just interesting to think about both in terms of his relationship to genre. Mm -hmm. We said that this is a sort of early steampunk yep. movie, we could say, but also it, it, it is very sort of influenced by, by fantasy, both in the sort of broader sort of generic use of the word and in terms of sort of the catalogue of Western mm -hmm. fantasy and the way it deals with animation in that it's, I don't know... You, 
you said you, about the relationship to the Disney studio, and I don't really want to make this a podcast again about how we <laughs> make everything about Disney and yeah. how things relate to Disney. But there's there's also a reaction going on here to what's happening in the West and and its its animation style, which it's mm-hmm. also developing. I don't know where this sits in manga history, for example. Is this um, is this before the sort of explosion of manga, or is this one of the things that helps explode it, or am I showing my ignorance by not knowing the answer? No, I think that the explosion has already already happened okay. by this stage, and uh, this probably gets really big in the 70s, for example, right. but a, it really really expands in, in a really huge way. But again, I don't want to, you know, uh, start to make oversimplifications about this either. Um, but uh, but the uh, but there's no doubt that this is a, a film, I think, which is a, a kind of celebration of beginnings, mm. and uh, a little bit of celebration of of endings as well, because obviously the the moment when um, uh, technology and uh, and the imagination uh, begins to take off is also a time when you're in danger of losing the past, uh, and there's a, an intense awareness of that of that danger and the presence of the past and the sort of uh, um, the confrontation between past, present, and future, which is always uh, always there in Miyazaki's movies. Um, a really good way to think about that in terms of this movie is the relationship between the uh, gigantic sort of uh, um, splendid uh, technology of the airships and the uh, little buzzing flying machines of the air pirates and the, uh, uh, the, the joyful kind of exuberance of the little tiger moth uh, sort of flying machine uh, as against the huge kind of airship monstrosity which is called Goliath, which is run by the army. And you've got alongside that, you've also got this magical or fantastic element, which is the crystal, which, uh, which is, uh, I can remember the, 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 the name of it is given in a film it's a uh, velocite or something like that uh, and uh, this is uh, to be found underneath the ground uh, but it is capable of giving uh, if you like uh, um, heavier that well I, I suppose you could call it lighter than air flight it's kind of like the pumice stone of the air which uh, which enables anything which uh, incorporates this crystal to fly uh, without the aid of technology uh, so you could say that these these crystals could represent something like dreams, mm. uh, ambitions, yearnings, this kind of uh, a, a desire for something uh, far beyond the capabilities of human beings up and up until this point. Well, I suppose on the note of of beginnings and flight, the film sets up within the first five ten minutes technology or certain, I mean I, I remember that the opening title sequence is kind of set against these um, industrial post-industrial steampunk images of um, whirring and, and, and things that are working yes. and we have then that immediately followed by that sort of air hijack the hijack of the, um, of the air airship. balloon the airship mm-hmm. that kind of thing so it's immediately establishing the I think the role yeah that sort of interplay between different kinds of flight and movement and and certainly if we think about obviously animation as a technology of movement and anime in particular having a, a specific relationship to movement if you go right back to the 60s and and and, and the sort of uh, i guess the earlier way that the backgrounds and the characters were laid on top of each other and how anime traditionally connoted movement it wasn't necessarily through poses and it was through lines and 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 movement was something that was visualized through shapes and abstract geometry and all these kinds of things um so there's something quite interesting i think about the the role of movement different kinds of movement powered movement mm-hmm. versus a sort of weightless to the so that, that's what I think is sort of interesting how the opening establishes a lot of um, players within this yeah. kind of big game. We have the role of flight, the role of technology, the role of the crystal. Um, 
it sets up the villains. So the opening ten minutes or so does a lot of work. Yes. Uh, that the film then can then go on and pull at those sort of narrative threads. As you say, the the film begins with a hijack. Uh, well, first of all, it begins with a lot of images of machinery. Yes. yes sort of yeah. over time, uh, that the growth and uh, and uh, sort of uh, um, uh, completion of an entire industrial revolution, uh, followed by its decline and collapse. So we, we see that, that arc being traced in the drawings at the beginning of the film. We then get a reason for the collapse, if you like. You've got the airship, which is then hijacked by a bunch of pirates who fight their way through the airship, and, uh, uh, and they're, they're trying to get hold of this, uh, clearly, this little girl who is in, uh, in one, of the, one of the cabins. Mm. She climbs out of the window, and uh, uh, in the ensuing scuffle between the pirates and the airship crew, she drops out of the sky. And interestingly, while she's dropping, she loses consciousness. Uh, so uh, the point at which the crystal comes into play is the point when she has lost consciousness, which is why I see the crystal as encapsulating yeah. a kind of a dream uh, or sort of uh, unconscious kind of aspect of things. At the same time, this, uh, this dream, this, this unconsciousness, is something which uh, two lots of uh, technological sort of uh, um, uh, clans, if you like, really want to get hold of. The air pirates and the, the military. Uh, so that they represent sort of the, the, the two forces who are, who are eager to get hold, if you like, of the kinds of, dream, of, of potent dreams that this girl uh, has tied around her neck. Uh, and which she, she brings, uh, thanks to floating gracefully down to the sky as the crystal is activated, mm. she brings into uh, the life of the, the minor boy that I was mentioning yeah. earlier. Pa so Patsu, Pazu, um, Patsu. Pazu uh, I should mention at this point, I don't remember any of the characters' names in this film, yeah. uh, so I'll be referring to them as them and they quite a lot. So the young... Chris the, will pick up the slack. Yes, the young orphan girl, <laughs> Sheeta, she's, she's the, the, obviously the, the kind of main protagonist, and we've talked previously, I think, on this podcast about Jibba's relationship to that sort of show character that that young girl who is neither child nor fully adult but on the on, on the cusp in some way so that sense of discovery and imagination that that perhaps connects those two um um periods of, of life but um she is the young orphan girl then we have muska so the the kind of um I guess the main villain of the piece, um, Captain Dola, who's a fantastic character anyway, yes. um, uh, and then Patsu, so the, the young orphan boy who whose world, so she becomes that sort of uh, fantastical intrusion, she intrudes into the world, and then he, and then, then actually the action calms down, yes. and I quite like, you have that bombastic opening, but then actually what happens is, you have two younger characters that are getting to know each other, and and I quite like those those sort of post hijack scenes where the characters, the two the two young characters, um, and then we're on a sense of discovery because I think the film kind of cross cuts between their pursuit, the yeah. villain's pursuit, or the 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 um, military and the the sort of um, pirates who are looking to find this this yeah. magical pendant, uh, and it cuts between them and the the, the two children, and then it's only when they um, now I will get this person's Uncle Pom, that's yes. the character, yeah. one of my favourite characters, this kind of eccentric. Um, uh, kind of hyper eccentric but the way that he's drawn is very uh, exaggerated as are a lot of the characters in and I think the art the kind of style of Ghibli's movies certainly it's the, the words like surreal and grotesque are always in play I think but he's yeah. a character who explains part of the legend yes of this, this particular crystal. stone this particular mm -hmm. crystal um, uh, and then that's really when when the characters learn that, that's when the jeopardy, I think, of the, okay, yeah. this is why they're after it, and it allows them some sort of access to this mysterious 
Well, you've beautifully laid out the three uh, levels of the movie. Now, one of the things that uh, the animation enables Miyazaki to do is to achieve multiple levels of space. So that at the at the very height, you've got you've got the uh, the airships and you've got the, uh, the the castle and the sky itself. Yeah. In the middle, you've got the uh, the land where the miners live, uh, where where in particular Pazu's cottage is, yeah. uh, and that's where the uh, uh, the work of living, if you like, takes place. Uh, and Miyazaki has a great uh, interest and respect for the uh, the technical processes by which a person lives. Uh, and you remember that this is kind of uh, illustrated in things like the moments of eating. He's particularly fond of uh, <laughs> young people eating eggs. You might have noticed that from Ponyo, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the later movie, where uh, two small children eat, uh, eat, eat um, noodles, and, uh, and uh, there are eggs also involved in that eating scene. But there's a point when, uh, um, when uh, Pazu and uh, Shita uh, both, uh, both, both eat, eat eggs and slurp them into our mouths. We've also got uh, um, some living creatures which li- live alongside uh, the human beings, which are the, the, the doves that live in the dove, dovecote. And then down below, you've got, the, you've got the, the, the further level, which is the mine. Now, the mine is where the raw material for the other two levels is, is drawn from, among other things. Above all, it's the raw material for the, for the, for the topmost level, which is where flying takes place. Uh, so it's, uh, it's where you will find the crystals and obviously, presumably, the, the coal, which might uh, fire up the steampunk mechanisms and that kind of thing. Uh, so you, you get down there and you meet up with, with old Uncle Pom. Uh, now, this takes me back a little bit to uh, the notion of, of beginnings, because um, that moment of the meeting with Uncle Pom, the aged miner, now the two children have been pursued by the, the pirates and by the army, and they've fallen down a hole, floating down uh, under the power of, of the crystal. They've landed right down below in, in a mine, a mine shaft. And, uh, and they meet up with old Uncle Pom, who approaches them and gives them something to eat and that kind of thing. So um, once they arrive there, um, Uncle Pom explains, as you say, the, the myth of the stone, of the crystal. And he says, uh, uh, look around you and you'll see all the crystals in the rocks glowing. Uh, and uh, when he puts out their lantern, they, they can see in the dark what seem to be constellations in the rock. Uh, and, and at that point, he says, uh, these only activate these crystals and come alive when the, uh, they say when Laputa, the castle in the sky, is moving overhead right above. So it's as if they kind of what, what's high at the top is activating what's uh, uh, the base and foundation of human society and, and the world itself, possibly. Now, uh, the, one thing I just wanted to, to mention about that is uh, I think the notion uh, that... Uh, Miyazaki is playing with here is derived from uh, a short story by Ursula Le Guin, which is called The Stars Below. Uh, This is about a scientist uh, who is very much like a Leonardo da Vinci character. Uh, he's spending, she's more like Galileo, really, really because he's, he's studying the stars all the time through his telescope. And, of course, he's persecuted in exactly the same way that Leonardo is. Um, being, uh, being persecuted for, uh, for his science, he flees and he finds his way into a mine shaft. He goes down into the mine and he uses, he takes with him his telescope. And he starts using his telescope to spy out constellations of uh, precious stones underground, which is why the story has the title, The Stars Below. 
Uh, this notion of, uh, of, of the persecuted person who is uh, still following the dream of discovery, uh, and, and of, uh, of finding fresh things, of discovering treasures that are really worth discovering, um, which are the treasures of knowledge, uh, the treasures, treasures of learning, the treasures of, uh, uh, if you like, the treasures of dreams if, uh, in that way. Uh, and he becomes friends with the miners, this, uh, this, this fleeing scientist, uh, and, uh, uh, and the story ends with him living, as it were, in, in the mines for the rest of his life. Life as uh, as a kind of Galileo for the for the working classes, um, and I think that uh, obviously we, we all know that Miyazaki is is quite a fan of Ursula Le Guin. He always wanted to adapt her Earthsea books into uh, into a movie. Eventually, that was done by Goro, his son, um, and I I think r- very interestingly. So I'm I'm quite a, quite a enthusiast for uh, for for the, for the very uh, controversial film uh, Tales of Earthsea. But uh, but certainly this this short story is, is is a story that that there's good chance that Miyazaki might have known in the 1980s, and I really like the idea that it brings together this notion of the uh, the origins of science, the possibility of science being possessed by aggressive military forces, uh, and or, or else being suppressed for reasons of uh, of the authorities' own, and the nevertheless the pursuit. Of the dream of knowledge, which is what science means, uh, in, you know, beyond the uh, uh, beyond the powers of the authorities to control. So let me see if I can, because that was really like lots to unpack in that. But I think it's a really sort of useful, almost I don't know, map of of the what, this dreamscape, which yeah. you've got this. We've got the sort of the underlayers, the, the sort of the ground below, which contain two sort of precious minerals, right? The, the coal, yeah. which is used to power industry, yeah. um, and then you've got the, the crystal, yes. which is used to power um, the, know, the forces of Laputa, for yeah, yeah. a better term. Yeah. And both of them come from the ground. Yeah. You've then got the, the sort of the, 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 the earth, the, yes. the, the, where the humans live, mm-hmm. who have the capacity to get at these stones if they look hard enough for them. Yes. Um, and then what these stones do give us is access to the sky, yes. which is where the dreams are, which is where yeah. fantasy is. Yeah. Um, so it's whether you, you, you uh, f- to take the metaphor further, whether you look for the crystals or look for the coal. Yeah. Um, and if you look for the crystals, mm-hmm. um, something positive and, 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 I don't know, uh, affirming and um, sustaining can yes. happen. And if you look for the coal, mm-hmm. there seems to be a suggestion in the movie that, you, that there is something sort of, I don't know, parasitic and um, destructive going on here. Possibly. Um, I mean, I think I think it's maybe slightly slightly subtler than that in the yeah. sense that I think the crystal represents what's destructive and what's what's possible. Right. So a little later in the story, Sheeta uh, reveals the fact that she uh, comes from uh, a, a family who han- have handed down a tradition uh, of Laputa's existence and that they are uh, intimately joined to Laputa uh, as a family because their, their family name is Laputa, in fact. Yeah. Later on, uh, the, uh, um, the 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 very uh, the, the villain of the movie uh, tells us that he too is a member of this family and he interprets it as uh, as a royal family of the castle in the sky. So the castle becomes uh, property, if you like, something which which he possesses. So there are two possibilities with the, with this stone, which has been sat, handed down from generation to generation of this family. I think in particular. 
particular through the girl's uh, mother, grandmother, the maternal line rather than the paternal line. And she says that there are two things it can do. One is that it can, uh, and we never really see this, this positive side, but it can heal illnesses and it, it's, uh, it's got infinite sort of possibilities for peaceful uses. Uh, but the other thing that it can do is to, uh, is, is to fire up appalling west weapons of mass destruction. Mm. And later in the movie, we see the villain figure uh, uh, sort of uh, operating one of these weapons of mass, mass, mass destruction from the castle in the sky. Uh, and in, you know, rather as you'd expect, the, uh, the, the, the thing that is triggered by this, uh, by, by this weapon being, being operated using the crystal is uh, a mushroom cloud uh, identical to the one that, that was detonated, the, the two that were detonated uh, in Japan at the, in 1945, uh, 1945. But it seems like all so, of these spaces are different spaces of kind of technology because you ha- or labour, because yeah. you talked about Miyazaki's fascination on the, you know, the earth level, the yes. fascination about how people live and their yeah. way of living. Yeah. Um, but then you also have each of those areas or each of those spaces that you define, those three areas, um, the air, the land, and then underground, are different or, or represent or embody different forms of, one, knowledge, but also labour. So obviously Uncle Pom has this awareness and knowledge of, and, and this idea of mining and being able to, and working by hand, presumably quite you know dirty and grubbly and that's that then you have the the kind of domestic or the most domestic space of all of them and then you have because domesticity in the sky is represented by her kind of exo- you know she, she's basically put into prison to be able to work and cook and do all this yeah. stuff and um but you have the underground labor you have the domestic labor and then you have a, a sort of steampunk pulleys and pistons and so three different spaces of of kind of technology that get more and more advanced but actually are interlinked as you say because yes. the one powers the other yeah um and so actually what the, the movement of the film seems to be characters that move between because the whole film is basically an extended kind of chase yes really and that's what gives it its, its yeah jeopardy and, 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 its... and very much uh, i think that the, the the drive behind it is to decide uh, how each of these powers is going to be used one thing yeah. you might notice about the minor society for instance is that uh, although quite often in descriptions of the movie uh that the, the ad adult who works alongside uh, um, Pazu is uh, referred to as his boss. Uh, there's no indication that the, the man is a boss. It's clear that he is older than Pazu and therefore knows how to operate the machinery and how to look for the coal and all these kinds of things. Uh, but later on, when uh, Pazu is being chased by the pirates, uh, it's uh, uh, Pazu and uh, his boss, if uh, if that's the, the right mm. name for him, uh, roll up their sleeves and prepare to face, face down the pirates together. Uh, it's it's very much a kind of collective community that was shown in the uh, in a miner's world. It's one that's been that's deserted. On the street. That's, that's it's on, on the street. street. Yeah, exactly. in, the, in the village. Sequence, and, yeah. uh, and you might remember that uh, um, at the very beginning when we first meet the other miners, they, they haven't been able to find evidence of the mine still being usable. So the, uh, the, 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 um, the situation we seem to be confronted with is one where the mines have been deserted by the ruling classes, but the workers remain there uh, trying very hard to open up the old seams or, or find new ones if they possibly can, and thereby benefit the community rather than any bosses who, who might be in charge. Yeah. And of course, famously, one thing about the movies, uh, the, the movie that everyone knows is that it was inspired by Miyazaki's uh, witnessing uh, of the the miners strikes in the, in the 1980s and he was a, a huge supporter of the miners uh, miners cause and uh, and he wanted to uh, invest the mining community that he represented in this movie uh, with the the energy and spirit of the cause that he'd seen uh, he'd seen in in Britain uh, during his uh, research trips to Britain but we actually and off here we were talking about kind of time periods and you said 
that were about indications of time and, and yes. Yeah. So there are actually two time time periods that are important for your analysis of yes. the film. The first is this minor strike of the eighties that Miyazaki yep. is. So the film is is of the time in surprise. It's released. Yeah, yeah, it's it's released in nineteen eighty six. So two years after um, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, but a year after Ghibli's founding. So yes. it's as you say, it's when it's the first mm-hmm. uh, you know, number one. Yes. Um, one uh, A, if yeah. we think about the Nausicaa. Yeah. But uh, so the eighties is really important as a particular context, but also the the indications within the film itself. Of given the that, date of the film. Given that the film is in, yeah. you know, has this sort of Jules Verne kind of. Um, I just wondered, yeah, you we were talking a little bit um, off air about that that one hidden indication in the film that gives us uh, a clue as to the time. Yes, the exactly. Now, uh, when we're in the the, the mining cottage where Pazu lives uh, by himself. Um, the, the, the one, one of the pictures that we see on the wall is a photograph that was taken by his father. And it's the first clue that we've had that Laputa, the castle and the sky might really exist. Now, on that photograph, there is a date, uh, 1867. Uh, and uh, one might wonder why there is only one date in, in the entire film. Uh, but the, the, um, the answer is, uh, is fairly straightforward, I think, which is the notion that uh, 1867 marks the, um, the ascendancy to the uh, imperial throne of Meiji the Great, the beginning of the Meiji period. Period, and therefore the start of industrialization in Japan, the ending of the years of segregation from the rest of the world, and the, the beginning of the extraordinary sort of uh, crescendo of industrialization, which hurled Japan at a speed greater than possibly any other uh, sort of major power uh, in the world at the time into an industrialized status, which of course uh, you know was a, was in many ways a, a profoundly kind of uh, um, sort of damaging and and, and uh, sort of uh, uh, an unsettling uh, sort of uh, um, process. But it was also of course a period of, of enormous possibility and excitement. Uh, and both of those things I, I think are, in, are invested in the film. The film itself clearly takes place later than 1867. The photograph is an old one. Mm. Um, now, we don't know exactly when it is, but uh, say, let's call it you know, later in the 19th century. Um, there's another film of, 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 uh, of, of uh, Miyazaki's, which he made uh, much later on. And amusingly, uh, I think he made it with the intention that this would be his final film. Though he went on, as we've said earlier, to make several more. Uh, it was Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's very clear from Howl's Moving Castle that that's set pretty precisely around 1900, with all the implications of uh, things ending and things beginning, the start of a new era, and the question of which way will the new era take us? Would it be towards the infinite possibilities of magic and romance and uh, uh, and pleasure in invention, which uh, Howell and his little strange community might stand for? Or will it point towards the calamitous war which Miyazaki chooses to introduce into his source material for Howl's Moving Castle. And in, uh, I think that um, uh, it seems fairly clear that The Castle in the Sky is set round about the same kind of time. Call it the end of the 19th century, pointing forward towards the beginning of the 20th century. You've got airships. Uh, maybe the thing which is most striking in terms of dating of the, of the film is the appearance of what looks like a, an old Renault car at one point, was being driven by the air pirates. Now, that, those mm. were being built about 1900, 1906, something like that. Uh, that's the date of that, of that car, as far as one can work out. So one can, one can pin down, because theoretically, the kind of period that this is, this is taking place in. And, and once again, it takes us back to this idea of we're on the cusp. We're on the cusp between the past and the present. We're on the cusp between uh, a calamitous rise of industry and, uh, and the possibility of, a, of the total collapse of it uh, and uh, pointing towards a future 
which might might either lead towards uh, uh, amazing new sort of uh, possibilities and discoveries or might equally lead to oppression damage and uh, uh, and totalitarianism which which stat which uh, which are sort of obviously represented very much by the giant airship Goliath and its military crew Alex, I'm just going to pause the podcast as we normally do at this juncture um, and actually do a callback to a previous interruption where we advertised our new fantasy animation screening series, uh, which is going to be taking place at the Cinema Museum. Okay, so is this a callback advertising our advertisement for the... Yes, if, if yeah, yes, in, in short, it is. Um, so this is uh, the fantasy animation screening series that, as I said, is going to be taking place on the back end of 2019 and into 2020, where we uh, introduce uh, a fantasy animation film, we screen the film, uh, and then we invite a guest, whether this is a practitioner, an artist, an animator, an academic, um, or me or you, and we talk a little bit about the film's relationship to fantasy and animation. Yes, yeah, so it'll be a um, screening of a movie. Some of them will be in 35mm, but they'll all be on the uh, Cinema Museum's fabulous old uh, projector. Um, and then we'll stick around afterwards for a chat with the audience and with our special guests. So we'll probably release some live podcasts on the back end of 2020. But if you want to come along and get and be in part of the excitement, I believe Hamilton would say the room where it happens, then you can get involved by simply going on the Cinema Museum website. So that is the cinemamuseum.org.uk. Uh, tickets are available. There's a bit more information about when doors open and when the films start, get your ticket, come along and hear us talk live in front of you about fantasy and animation. I think for six quid, that's a bit of a bargain. That's an absolute bargain. I'm going to buy two tickets and only use one. Okay, can we now record another introduction where we advertise this advertisement? I'll see you there. I was going to ask whether this film is nostalgic, but I think I've I've answered my question in my own head while we've been talking, which I don't think it is. Yeah. It's certainly looking back yeah. to the past. So mm-hmm. I guess I'd like to try and unpick with you guys what... what how that process is working because Western fantasy certainly gets accused of being um, uh, nostalgic quite often, and it sort of it, it, it valorizes a sort of pastoral vision of of, of various sort of um, Germanic or, or Anglo-Saxon past, right? But but here it's 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 it sounds like the the representation of history yeah. or the thematic engagement with history is more cyclical in that it's going back to this. There are three periods we've now invoked, right? There's um, the start of uh, modernization of Japan. Um, there's the mid 1980s context, mm-hmm. um, which I'm not that familiar with, but um, but you know, on a global level, we're talking about a rise of sort of consumer economics, the rise of free market e- economics, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And then, of course, you've got um, Hiroshima yes. and the bomb. Yeah. So there's this idea that there was one phase of history which led us to here. Yeah. We're now in a new phase that's almost. We're almost at the top of the wave yeah. of where that can go. Yeah. So where do we go now? Do yeah. you see this as a sort of um, comment on a, on a, almost a cyclical understanding of history? Of rebirth. You talk about beginnings. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a beginning or a rebirth, maybe? Or That's a really like nice way of putting it. You asked whether the film was nostalgic. Uh, I think that the better word for it would be elegiac. Yeah. It's kind yeah. of like a okay. looking back on possibilities that were available in the past and were perhaps not seized. Um, most obviously, this is a, an alternate history. I mean, that the history that we're introduced to via a series of drawings at the very beginning of the film, the, the history of the airships, the presence of these extraordinary robots uh, which, which uh, populate the, 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 the flying island, uh, all of these things uh, never existed. Um, uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, the, uh, uh, there's, there's always this sense that it could possibly have been like this, um, and more importantly, there's this constant sense of we are in flux between these different possibilities. 
Um, one of the most uh, moving moments in the film is one that Miyazaki nearly cut out of it, uh, which is uh, it's quite a famous moment, but it's the moment when um, uh, Pazu climbs up out of his... Uh, he, he looks at, um, at this girl who's fallen out of the sky, and she's lying on his bed, Sheeta, and uh, he smiles. He's, he's rather pleased that this has come into his life, and he climbs up onto the roof and does what he does every morning, which is he puts his bugle to his lips and plays uh, a beautiful mm-hmm. melody, and one should draw strong attention to the extraordinary score that Joe Hisaishi has produced for this for this movie. Uh, but he produces this wonderful um, kind of uh, reve, you could say, with with his bugle or his trumpet. I'm not actually sure. It might be a trumpet, actually. Uh, uh, anyway, he, he, with his brass instrument. Sure. Uh, and the whole valley kind of comes alive and awakes. Now, uh, uh, using a brass instrument itself is a kind of, uh, uh, you know, it's quite a telling thing because most obviously these instruments have very often been used, been used for military purposes. Mm-hmm. But here produ- he produced this marvellous elegiac tune which wakes up the working world and uh, and prepares them for another effort to, uh, uh, to, to, to begin another day and and to consider uh, what, what they will do with the raw materials that are available to them. And, uh, you know, the richest of those raw materials clearly is the crystal that she carries, carries with her. Uh, the pain of the movie is that in the end that raw material is, uh, is lost. And because uh, it's going to be used for appalling things by Captain Dola, uh, is, uh, is that the, the, the name? Yeah. I'm, 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 yeah. I'm, like you, I've, I've kind of forgotten the names, but uh, the villain of the piece, anyway. Yeah. He wants to take take control of this, of this crystal. It becomes too dangerous to retain the crystal itself, and eventually the, the children, uh, Shita and Pazu, decide to give it up. Uh, and to uh, and to end it all. So they speak uh, what uh, uh, Le Guin uh, identifies in another short story in um, uh, The Wind's Twelve Quarters, from which the stars below comes, as the word of unbinding. And I'm pretty sure that uh, he gets that notion from Le Guin as well. Uh, Shita and Pazu together speak the word of unbinding, and the, the crystal uh, it becomes... Uh, a uh, uh, or sets off a kind of destruct self-destruct button, which is supposed to destroy the castle in the sky. It destroys the villain and is supposed to destroy destroy the children as well. Interestingly, instead, the children find themselves caught in the roots of a completely unexpected item, which is uh, w- which turns up in the island in the sky as well, which is a tree, an enormous, gigantic tree. Now we all know that uh, again that Miyazaki is a massive fan of trees. Indeed, very much like Ursula Le Guin, who describes herself as the most arboreal science fiction writer ever. Um, and uh, this this giant tree holds the island together and maintains it in the sky after the after the destruction of the crystal. So in fact, uh, the crystal is not uh, utterly destroyed. It it it, uh, it operates destructively, but the possibility retain, remains at the end of the film for a new beginning, new possibilities. Uh, something rather similar happens actually at the end of Howl's Moving Castle, when a, a demolished castle reassemb- reassembles itself uh, as a living place, a dwelling place in the sky. Something that flies, which is not destructive. Mm. Well, it seems like the way that you... I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Elegy, because uh, Susan Napier's work on anime suggests that actually, you know, anime itself... So she's an anime scholar who writes that anime isn't a genre, but it can contain genres. And the three... Well, she talks about modes. There are three 
three modes of anime and uh, the apocalyptic, the festival, and the um, or, or ideas of the apocalypse festival and elegy. So these Wonderful. are all modes yeah. uh, that are significant to the way that anime is, is structured. And you obviously have a lot of, um, I guess, more cyberpunk anime, which is perhaps geared towards apocalyptic, yes. post-apocalyptic. And then you have a film like um, uh, Laputa Castle in the Sky, or even, as you said, Howl's Moving Castle, where um, Miyazaki seems really interested in the provocative way in which he can bring together technology and nature in these sorts of like quite disjointed so as you say it's it's the, the world in the sky is being surrounded or held together or the city is being held together by a tree and there's there's it, the idea of the the modern and the uh, modern modernity versus tradition but also the role of nature nature being overgrown something that is overgrown and can overgrown and o- overcome um spirited away obviously you have the the this overgrown passageway that connects to another world so there's interest what i like about this film in particular but miyazaki is quite provocative way in which he he conjures up these images of things that shouldn't quite go together and often Mm. they fall on that divide between sort of nature and culture Um, and so I find that sort of the way that Napier talks about different modes of anime, Miyazaki seems to be playing within the elegiac mode but also at the same time connecting it up with technology or... or Mm. But, but is the reason that we sort of find this clash of technology and nature somewhat jarring? It might be to do with the sort of cultural baggage we have going into it. Because I was thinking while, you were, while we were both talking about the difference between fantasy and science fiction, which seems to be a thing lots of people get very ostracised about. And, <laughs> and I'm not necessarily one of them, but I do yeah. think there is a distinction, at mm. least within the sort of two traditional terms. Mm. And as simply as I can put it, the difference between science fiction and fantasy is that science fiction is a joy in what could be mm. and fantasy is a joy is what could not be. And both mm. of them come out of a sort of realist post-enlightenment worldview. Yeah, mm. One of them is um, uh, stop telling me I can't dream I will. And the other one is okay, if you're telling me the only way I can dream is through scientific inquiry, that's how I will dream. Yes. Whilst what we get here is, is, is um, a pleasure in what could have been mm. but cannot be because it's mm. it has gone yes yeah so yeah. it's a fantasy it's a sci- it's a speculative inquiry of something mm. that is destined to fail yeah and yeah. that's the elegy right yes. Yes. so it's it's neither it's it's that's the impulse that drives it and that yeah. requires technology to represent possibility yes and spirituality to sort of almost represent its its failings or its limitations. There's a line in the movie about um, uh, when the the boy sees um, sees the girl flo- floats da- like downwards very mm. gracefully at the start. Yeah. Of the film. Um, no, when he sees it first in the sort of ravine they fall into, yes. uh, and yes. he says something like, um, "I th- you, you, um, I was afraid you were an angel yeah, or something like that's that." That's right. Yeah. Um, which again sort of invokes either either a sort of another realm of you know of, of the afterlife or of mm. death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and either or being something not of this earth. That's really so, good, yeah. so is there a you know these archetypes only clash yeah. if we see that impulse in a sort of Western genre fiction kind mm-hmm. of way? But if we embrace this elegiac impulse, actually, mm-hmm. the two things are part of the same thing, which is this yeah, celebration these, of the um, things that can't be that could have been. You beautifully brought out a, 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 one of a, of a series of images of falling. Um, you know, there's there's this uh, image of the, the, the girl falling out of the sky at the beginning. There's the image of the, uh, of the boy and the girl falling down into the mine shaft, 
which is uh, um, suspended again by the crystal uh, a little later on after the chase by the air pirates and by the by the military. And later you get also the image of one of the robots falling down from the castle in the sky, looking very much like a falling angel falling out of heaven uh, and uh, and therefore becoming presumably devilish or satanic. Um, but in each of these cases, uh, each of the each of these moments, uh, I really like that the, you know the, the the moment when the when the boy says, "I was afraid you were an angel." Mm. I don't know whether that's an exact translation no, of, of sure. what's said in the Japanese, but it's uh, uh, but there is this sense that uh, that you know if if you are an angel, then there's something going on here which I don't have a grasp on. Uh, whereas if you're not an angel, then it's possible that uh, there are all sorts of possibilities opened out mm. uh, concerning what our action could uh, could implement, could make happen. Um, so I I, I don't um, I, I think that there's uh, that there's a kind of positivity and and and, uh, and a, a sense of optimism that runs right through this deeply elegiac and tragic film <laughs> in all sorts of ways. Well, um, you know, so uh, most obviously uh, one great example of that of that is when the uh, the mother of the air pirates at the very end of the film says, uh, "We're going to build uh, a better airship." Uh, to replace the tiger moth, which has been destroyed by the by the military uh, and by the by the detonation of the of, of the castle in the sky, uh, everyone is going to start rebuilding. And you know that uh, going back to your notion of of cyclicality, I think there's a very strong sense of that notion, uh, notion that you you start again, uh, you know, when things have been destroyed, and you build again and you build better. Um, and uh, Shita has given us a fairly clear idea of how you how you build better, where she tells the villain. Uh, at the point when he is trying to take command of the castle in the sky and thereby take command of the whole earth. Um, and she says to him, the trouble with you is you've lost your roots. You've lost, lost contact with the earth. Uh, and you need that contact with the earth, represented by the roots of the tree, which is which is floating above the earth, uh, represented by the uh, uh, the commitment to the the communities that inhabit the earth, uh, the kind of thing which uh, which Sheeta is familiar with from having worked the land. Uh, we know that she originally she she grew up on a farm uh, that her parents died there, but that she carried on working it after their after their disappearance, and that she was taken from this farm forcibly by but uh, uh, by the villain and the uh, and the military. So uh, so this yeah I, I think there's this, this this strong sense that uh, the whole film is pointing in two directions, which is why the notion of the uh, uh, of it being set around about the turn of the twentieth century, uh, between the nineteenth and the twentieth century, at the point when uh, people are beginning to think really seriously about the the, the huge massive potential of the uh, of the technology that has been generated during the industrial age. Uh, that's uh, that that's a that's a moment of uh, a Janus-like moment, uh, the two two-faced God who looks both backwards and forwards. Uh, and the question then is: uh, Is that Janus-faced God also looking towards destruction and creation? Also looking towards the two different ways that you can uh, you can animate uh, the world through industry, through technology, through work. There's never been a time, of course, when uh, when this has been more important as a, as a question. Uh, than this particular juncture in history, when we had a Janus moment in terms of the world's existence, mm-hmm. uh, when uh, when the question of whether we're going to decide uh, to uh, to work with nature to remember our roots, or whether we're going to uh, we're just going to continue to consume and uh, and uh, uh, control uh, and and take command and thereby finally destroy ourselves in exactly the way the military do in the course of this film. 
Since I'm, I'm so I'm interested in the role of animation in all of this because the, yeah. the sort of fundamental paradox um, that occurs to me when watching Miyazaki's consistent interest in the organic and in this and in the spiritual is how you know unorganic uh, his films look purposely mm. so right they're not you know they're, they're, there's a lot of sort of um, purposely flat mm. um, drawing like. Um, aesthetics going on here. That um, his, you know, his his style of animation is not attempting to um, replicate or or be invested in the real world. But um, I wonder whether maybe that's that's it's it's what animation allows. Um, Chris can speak far better this than I am. But my tentative grasp on sort of within these movies is it allows this sort of touching at something that can never be grasped in the. Um, what what you know animation is sort of you know shadows on the wall it's mm. it's a representation of a representation it's 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 one step removed so if we're talking about this idea that the film represents something that could have been but will never be yeah the images themselves are that right the mm. images themselves are um characters thoughts ideas dreams yeah. that that could have been once, but will never be yeah and that's how they're styled accordingly mm. and if they were going to be they'd look like this. Yeah. They'd be drawn like this. They'd look like this. They'd have. Yeah. They'd be embodied like this. So the the uh, personification of spirits. These. Are, I mean, this is obviously a film about force, power, and energy, and the connections between things that ge- that yield force, power, and, uh, and, and energy. Um, certainly within the history of Ghibli, and I uh, mentioned earlier about obviously the importance of flying, and, and actually more important than the than the power of flying is falling, which yeah. is interesting. But um, lots of scholars on, on anime have written about the importance of flying. Uh, one, because it's obviously transgressive. It's yeah. something that animation, you know, this is great. We can show something that happens in the air that nothing, this isn't This isn't something that can happen here, but it can happen in that, that particular world. So it's a major kind of symbol of transgression. It's uh, empowerment because it's, it's obviously important that it's um, a shoujo character that is doing this flying, yeah. floating, falling. Yeah. Um, when she floats or when she falls, there is there is no jeopardy when then the villains fall. They fall to their death, sort of thing. So mm. there's a there's kind of that. So empowerment, transgression, um, but also this idea of the carnival and the festival, things that give us, I think, as spectators, um, and this is again Napier talks of exhilaration and excitement, um, an obvious escape from the ordered earthbound world. Um, more importantly, however, she says the image of the flying girl sends a message of boundless possibility. Mm. So it it connects up to animation as this mm. creative. Um, uh, medium of creative expression in which emotions, imagination, and sometimes even technology combine. Yeah. Uh, and again, that's what Laputa's doing. It's combining all these, as you said, this sort of Janus moment, this mm. the, the energy of, of that friction between mm. then and now and you know next. Yes. Um, that hope of potentially attainable alternative world that transcends our own. So it is both, going back to your point about nostalgia, but is it really a nostalgia? It's looking back. Is it then hopeful looking yes. forward? Or is it, is it caught floating between these two yeah. multi you know the, that that moment it's floating in this sort of i don't want to say uh, abyss i want to say uh what's the word space yeah that sort of liminal liminal mm. in between limbo that's the word i was mm. thinking inception i was thinking limbo that sort of that sort of uh, you know and japanese culture obviously if you look at ozu's movies about um the influence of america and so some of these movies late spring yeah has these wonderful landscapes and then has an advert for Coca-Cola in the background. So there's these competing forces that are played out really nicely through through the animation. And, and in this case, it's spatialized, as you mm-hmm. say. It's, it's animation allows us to really see this on quite an exaggerated 
scale. Yes. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I read about the about the movie, and I wish I could name check who exactly it was that I read saying this, but I think it was a brilliant perception, which is that the whole movie is in in a sense about weight. Um, and uh, and counterweight. Uh, mm. you, you were talking about how the uh, um, the the, the, uh, uh, the movie enacts all sorts of things that, that, that are really physically impossible. But one thing that's very familiar about animation as a problem is how you represent weight. Mm. It's, it's it's very very yeah. hard to do. It's particularly hard to do probably in a in a live action animation uh, where you're trying to make uh, a, a, a CGI monster look as if it's heavy. And uh, it's so bloody hard. Almost nobody can do it ever you know so which is why we always go back to having puppets because they look so much more convincingly weighty than the things that are not weighty that, that, that we try to animate fleshy now, now this is fleshy. something that the, the the whole film plays with in all sorts of ways there's, there's um, one thing that you I mean it, it seems to me that this is particularly focused on the two young people uh, so Sheeta uh, who you rightly have been describing as the core of the uh, as the yeah. centre of the movie but also um, uh, Pazu yeah. uh, now Pazu uh, represents uh, a kind of common weightlessness at various times in the film. Most obviously the kind of Warner Bros. weightlessness whereby uh, you go off the edge of a cliff uh, and you, you're absolutely fine walking through the air <laughs> as long as you don't notice that you just walked off the end of a cliff. Yeah. If you notice, you're going to be co- wily Coyote and you're going to drop like a stone and, and explode at the bottom. And uh, uh, so he's, he's constantly in that position where um, it, it, his, his animation is very close to the wonderful uh, sort of action animation that Miyazaki achieves in the castle of Cagliostro in, uh, in his earlier days. Uh, in in uh, um, I think it's the, 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 the most motion picture before Nausicaa that he, that he developed. Um, so in the castle of Cagliostro, uh, the, uh, the, the main character Lupin is constantly kind of wh- whirling his arms and legs in fantastically impossible ways in order to get himself, scrabble his way back onto a rooftop or uh, get himself back up a cliff which he's just fallen off and various other techniques like that. There are many moments in the film when Pazu does something like that, especially when he's scrambling around the island. Um, there's a great moment though uh, when he's in prison and he's put in, been put in prison by the army, uh, uh, who are just about to jettison him out of their out of their uh, out of their fortress, uh, because he's no longer useful to them. They have got hold of Sheeta, who they've been pursuing. They pursued her. Remember, um, you know, when she was uh, when she fell into the mine, they've pursued her at various points. They've got hold of her, and they just want to get rid of the boy. But first of all, they put him in prison. And he manages to scramble his way up this seemingly precipitous, unsurmountable wall, or right up to uh, to a window. He looks out the window, and he can't see anything out the window, and he loses his grip on this uh, on the surface, and he falls down and bumps his head on the on on the floor of the prison. Uh, so all his fantastic cartoon energy is not sufficient to escape from this trap that the military has set for him. Uh, so there is someone who is uh, who is given the possibility of impossible weightlessness, but is unable to use it under uh, the, the, the prevailing conditions of the ideology that has control of him. Uh, at the other extreme, you've got uh, you've got Sheeta, who is able to, uh, uh, to 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 sustain herself in ways which are not like uh, conventional animation and not like conventional crystals. There's there's a great moment near the beginning of the film uh, where the relationship between the world that she inhabits and the world uh, and that Pazu inhabits is wonderfully demonstrated. So he uh, sees her body floating down out of the sky. Uh, he runs to the end of a pier 
type of thing, a kind of uh, a bridge, it's a kind of industrial structure, and stretches out his arms to catch her, and she floats down into his arms. It's a marvellous moment of synergy, uh, of, of coming together of two entirely different worlds, and, uh, uh, you know, he, he, his, his face lights up with pleasure as he, as he grasps her, uh, and suddenly the, the, the crystal goes out, and her real weight kicks in and he almost falls off the industrial structure into the mine shaft because she's so much heavier than he expected. So this notion of the play between what's light and what's heavy, between what's, uh, uh, what's falling and what's floating, between what's, uh, what's flying and what's about to, to plummet from the sky, uh, kicks into this, this, uh, this whole game of the balance between what we decide that we're going to be able to do uh, and what we're willing to do with the things that give power. Uh, most obviously the, the, the power of our dreams, uh, the, the power of the possibility of what we might do with the extraordinary technologies that we've been given access to, of which, of course, animation is one. Mm. It's one of the greatest and most extraordinary te technologies that we were given in the, sort of the beginning of the, uh, of the 20th century, uh, and one which, um, which, which Japan itself is particularly, was particularly concerned with. I've been watching some, some early Japanese movies uh, made in the late 30s and through the 40s, through the, through the Second World War. And, uh, and many of these were, of course, uh, funded by the military uh, as a means of, uh, of uh, producing propaganda, which would inspire uh, the Japanese people to resistance against the, against the West. Uh, but they're also... Um, uh, yeah, but, but, but they were also used to, uh, uh, to, to demonstrate that Japanese culture was capable, capable of producing something on the same level of, uh, of skill and, and, uh, and brilliance as, as what uh, Disney was producing mm -hmm. in things like Pinocchio or uh, um, uh, Snow White and the rest of them. Uh, but, but these films were being used for, uh, you know, very much to, to, to sponsor an imperialist message uh, at that stage in Japanese history. Um, so there's this, uh, there's this extraordinary kind of double wish, both to be the most creative and also to use that creativity to, uh, to obtain sort of a, a power uh, and thereby produce destruction. So if we get to, into the... Uh, it's interesting what you said about the weightlessness, because the film, towards the end, I've put, I've put as a little note, the film ends but does not ground the characters by bringing them back to Earth. Is that right, that the film ends with them still weightless and yes. still in the air? And, yeah. and there's sort of like... There's something quite nice about that, that it yeah. doesn't, it doesn't bring us because all the, when you were talking about uh, renewal and and this idea of uh, sort of uh, you build or you destroy so you can then build again and make sure that you build again stronger. There's obviously the other way to look at that that you come crashing back down to earth. Yeah, and actually, absolutely. the film doesn't it doesn't, it doesn't do return that. its characters. Or it retains its joy in flight. Yeah, uh, and, and, it, and there's a, there's a wonderful precariousness. You remember at that point, the mother of the pirates says to her uh, says to the other pirates, uh, "Yes, there are too many people in this uh, in this joined together set of sort of dragonfly craft." which yeah. is all that's left of, of, of their flying unit yeah. uh, and they say yeah, yeah we're too heavy you know there's too many of us but she's still uh, retaining that vision herself she's saying we will build another and a better craft for ourselves and uh, uh, and go on pursuing our our, our selfish motives so I've only, um, I mean I've only got a, a couple of other one is is uh, I was looking as you were talking about uh, I was looking at Jules Verne so 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea uh, was published in 1870 uh, but based on an exhibition Jules Verne was inspired by 
Brown exhibition that he attended in 1867 nice. uh, to uh, look. He was looking at that. Oh, so that that interest in in journeying is actually one of discovery, and, yeah. and so that was an interesting. Okay, so the 1867 is a is a date and is a is a thing. Yeah. Uh, the second thing I think, yeah, is is very very quickly uh, the the film is has been influential on it's influential on Japanese anime but yes. also um, it's a film that has been placed in conversation with with Disney Disney's attempt in 2000 um, in 2001 its film Atlantis the Lost Empire borrows heavily from some of the character designs in one um, Nadia secret of blue water oh, yes. um, and also this film so yeah. some of the character designs in Disney's film yeah. uh, Atlantis the Lost Empire it's a very anime style and there's lots of fan yeah. art yeah. Um, and there's lots of sort of writing online about how um, Laputa Castle in the Sky was has influenced Japanese anime, of course, but it's also influenced yeah. um, the Disney studio. Uh, my final point is, John, uh, is Swift yeah. and fantasy, because I was wondering, in all of this, I don't really know my fantasy as well as, as, as you two. I can scrape by on a bit of Disney and a bit of Ghibli, but um, this is do, does, does any of the things or any of the things that, I guess, fit in the film, all these threads, is there something that chimes with fantasy, fantasy scholarship, fantasy literature, Swift... Is this film a fantasy? I expect you're going to have more sermons about than I am. <laughs> um, the, the, the if you've done Gulliver's Travels, of is course. Laputa is an island yes. in the original Swift Gulliver's Travels. I think we mentioned when we did Gulliver's Travels, the, the Fleischer film, that the book is actually not just Lilliput, even though that's the thing that tends to get adapted. There's all these other different islands. Yes. And, and oh, Laputa okay. is an island in there. And if I remember rightly... Although I might be misremembering, it, it is a sort of mechanical island that they drive around. Or it's operated like by that. magnet, right? So it's okay. basically so there's a lodestone in it which keeps it suspended above the land which it governs. Okay. So is this so it's a flying island? So is yes. this so that so I guess my question is is that is that a deliberate evocation of that kind of is is that Miyazaki saying that this is what this film is? It's going to be dealing and kind of go over similar ground and mine similar territory. Yeah, yeah, I love that idea, uh, and uh, it's uh, it's certainly something that is referred to in the in the film uh, it, it some of the uh, subtitled versions uh, edited out the references to Gulliver's Travels from the uh, fr fr from the Japanese uh, soundtrack but uh, but they you know in the recent version which is which is available of the Studio Ghibli film there is this uh, uh, there are references to Gulliver's Travels um, the main thing about Laputa in Gulliver's Travels is a flying castle which is a uh, an instrument of oppression it's designed as a, as a, as a governmental tool. Uh, any uh, country that it flies over that refuses to tow the line, uh, it will gradually settle down on top of the country until it's completely flattened and there's no more of it left. Uh, so it's a, it's a kind of, a, it's, it's an instrument of destruction. It's a, uh, uh, it's, it's a kind of, a, um, you know, a, a kind of uh, atomic bomb of the late 18th century, if you like. So uh, so that, that's, that's, that's the central idea, I think, behind Laputa. Uh, you could say that the Gulliver's Travels theme uh, is kind of, Responded to in, uh, in 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 Castle in the Sky by um, the sort of interaction between weight and weightlessness between floating and weight, uh, where in Gulliver's Travels it's largely about size, uh, so whether you're huge or whether you're small. If you're very small, you can be power hungry still uh, and, uh, and and small minded uh, and and keen to keep control over people who are larger than you by tying them down on beaches. If you're huge, then you can turn small people into your playthings and uh, and swap them aside if they irritate you. So uh, you know the, the the size notion is 
is is obviously central to Gulliver's travels. Um, and uh, right running through uh, uh, the uh, um, the Castle under Sky, uh, uh, games with size based on things like the story of David and Goliath. Mm. You might remember that the uh, the airship belonging to the military is called Goliath, mm. and uh, and that was brought down by a small person. So uh, so you know the, the um, there is a there's a there's a game going through here. Um, another game with uh, with Western literature is played with the notion of Treasure Island, which is also referred to specifically uh, in the uh, in the soundtrack uh, at one point in the film. Uh, and uh, what we one one group of people we haven't really mentioned yet are, are the pirates, uh, mm. who are people who uh, turn up quite regularly in Miyazaki movies. Um, most obviously in Porco Rosso, for instance, there's a, a team of, of wonderful pirates who are who are basically out for themselves, but who uh, at uh, at a pinch will realise that their own self-interest means ganging up against fascism and, 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 and totalitarianism and other forms of oppression, capitalist oppression, um, and, uh, and, and, and team up with the, with the maverick uh, resistor uh, of, of power uh, in the form of Poco Rosso or in the form of the two children in, uh, in, in, the castle, in Castle in the Sky. Um, Treasure Island, uh, interestingly, doesn't, um, uh, it, it is, is full of the, the, the joy and excitement of piracy as well as the appalling sort of uh, danger and, and, and horror of piracy as well. Uh, there's not, a, not so much of the latter in the castle in the sky. You don't get the sense of a uh, profound fear of the, of the pirates. Though in the very opening shots, when the pirates are invading the, the airship, they're pretty scary at that point. Uh, you don't know who is supposed to be the enemy and who isn't. Mm -hmm. At the point when the two children are being chased to the mining village um, and around the, uh, around the canyons of the mining community, then too the pirates seem at first to be profoundly scary uh, people, but then gradually become more and more sort of attractive as the military takes over the chase. Um, so so that there's, uh, but at the same time, that the, the pirates are there as, as a theme, as a notion. People who are uh, immensely inventive in harnessing technology for their own purposes without bother about uh, how anybody else is going to be affected by them. But the main thing the pirates are most interested in is, is treasure. And one, thing's that, one of the great pleasures that Miyazaki has in his early movies is to, uh, is to surprise us by the nature of the treasure that is being pursued. Now, there are two films where that happens in. Castle, the Castle of Cagliostro uh, ends with the revelation that the treasure of Cagliostro, uh, that, the, if, that the villain has been after all the way through the film, uh, is in fact uh, a set of beautiful ancient Roman ruins, which are revealed by the draining of a, of a reservoir at the end of the film. In Castle in the Sky, uh, the treasure that's being pursued by the, by the pirates, uh, well, it does turn out to be treasure rather conveniently, which they stuff into their clothes and retain at the end of the film, rather, uh, again, rather pleasingly. Um, but, the, uh, but the other, the, the, the more important treasure is this extraordinary Edenic paradise, which the, uh, uh, which the governmental sort of power-hungry island has been transformed into by its desertion by human beings and by the preservation that's been wrought on it by the by the robots who are supposed to guard it. So there's, a, there's this notion of treasure as something which, again, could point in, 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 in two different directions, either towards the greed of, uh, of uh, self-advancement and, and self-promotion and, sort of, uh, and, 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 uh, and infinite riches, uh, or uh, could point towards the possibility of, uh, uh, of embracing uh, a, a kind of uh, ecology of community, which is what the, uh, the castle in the sky seems to in the end uh, end up by by representing at the end of the film and and the film ends on with the two of them still up there sort of suggesting that at some point 
they've got to come back down to earth and make that decision right yes. that, you know if we go back to what you were saying at the beginning of the podcast about the sky being the sort of the ephemeral weightless dream yes uh, at some point a dream needs weight and and enacting yes uh, or it's going to stay up there yeah um, and do nothing yeah there, um, there, i mean it's always worth mentioning the credits uh, I, I was i was told by my uh, um uh, by my uh, colleague Saizo, Saiko uh, Yazaki that uh, it's very rude in Japan to leave a movie theatre uh, before the credits have finished rolling. Uh, it's considered to be you know, the ultimate height of, uh, of, of uh, disdain for the movie experience. I really, I, I really like that well, notion. Well, Marvel you would might, agree yeah, too. Yeah, you might miss the uh, bit at the end of the Miyazaki extended universe. Absolutely. Well, you remember what the credits are like at the end of this film, where um, for uh, 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 the, the whole credits, you've got this double vision of the island in the foreground floating in the sky and the land behind it. And, it's, and the land behind it is undergoing all the changes of... Of the seasons and of different weather and things like that and so is the island both at the same time so this notion of the two of them being in communion with each other in collaboration with each other is what we're left with at the end of the film some people actually say that the end of the film is very abrupt and very fast well and there is a you know there's a rapidity of the of the denouement where the villain is got rid of and the uh, the island sort of uh, explodes and then you know is retained in the sky by the power of the tree uh, holding the crystal up um, but there's also this sense that it, it hasn't finished yet and actually you've got to keep watching those credits to get the sense of what Miyazaki is telling us about the, uh, uh, about the relationship between our dreams which float high above us and which we, we might want to pursue throughout our lives uh, and, the, uh, and the work that we have to do on the ground in order to make those dreams uh, c- come into effect. Um, by the way, this is a, a great moment for me to say that I really hate the Netflix technique of kind of switching off the credits while you're trying to watch them and so mm-hmm. you know you have to find a way of clicking back on the credits but in order to in order to retain them because as we know from the marvel cinematic universe you know you really do need to keep watching yeah, the credits the end. otherwise you miss everything well yeah. you miss the moment of not contemplation right which is uh, yes. i love that idea of sort of you, you you tie the action up but that doesn't mean we're over yet no. we need a few minutes to sort of process yeah, yeah. well I, I'm I think I've processed the movie much better over the last hour or so absolutely so, um, yeah. so it's been a wonderful opportunity for me I hope listeners got um, out lot out of it um, uh, Robert where, where um uh, what's coming up uh, in 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 the the all things fantasy here at Glasgow that uh, listeners might want to know about if they are in the area or fancy coming to the area? Well, we've got uh, we've got our annual conference called Gifcon, uh, which will be uh, Gifcon twenty twenty will be taking place at the end of May, so that's something to look forward mm-hmm. to. And there's always space there for the discussion of movies and uh, comics, uh, gaming, uh, as well as of literature. Uh, we've also got a, a major conference on Outlander, which is going to be taking place here in Glasgow at the beginning of June, I think around about June the 4th or 5th. But again, you can check that out on uh, just by Googling uh, Outlander in Glasgow, I expect. Mm. Uh, and, and finally, um, the more, m- much sooner, we've, we've got a very exciting event, which is uh, the 10th anniversary of uh, Scotland Loves Anime, which is taking place at the GFT and over in Edinburgh at the, at the Film House uh, and elsewhere. Um, and uh, this 10th anniversary marks uh, the sort of a, a decade of, uh, of hugely significant anime activity uh, here in Scotland, uh, which has uh, um, uh, developed to become one of the major anime festivals in the world. You'll, you'll even see references to Scotland Loves Anime on, on the covers of, uh, of anime movies that are being produced by uh, uh, all the anime and, and, other, and other producers. Uh, you know, if they've won a prize at Scotland Loves Anime, then it's, it's really important. Anyway, Scotland Loves Anime is 
uh, is introduced uh, every year by the wonderful Jonathan Clements, who's uh, along with Susan Napier is one of the major uh, sort of uh, um, authorities on anime in the uh, uh, in the world today. Uh, so he's going to be coming to talk to us here in Glasgow on the 10th of October at, uh, at um, I think it's at five. 30. Uh, and uh, so 10th of October, Thursday the 10th of October, he'll be here giving us a talk uh, about uh, 10 years of Scotland Loves Anime. Uh, and uh, he'll be there to answer questions after the talk. And who knows, you might even be able to get a drink with him as well. <laughs> and so, if people uh, wanted to come to the, the tickets in advance, where can they get them um, from? Yeah, I, I think it's just open entry. Um, right. you, uh, just keep an eye on, uh, on, on news coming up. We'll be uh, advertising it via Twitter, uh -huh. uh, via Facebook. Uh, we have a Facebook page called Fantasy at Glasgow and, and a Twitter account called U of G Fantasy. So you're all very welcome to follow either of those or join either of those and, uh, and, and be aware of all the events that are taking place. But we'll be starting to advertise Jonathan's talk uh, in a big way very soon. And I, I think that um, the GFT, uh, well, the, the Scotland Loves Anime Festival will also be advertising it in their material. So, uh, uh, so you're all very welcome Great. to come to that and it's open to the public. So. Wonderful, terrific. That's um, please do come up and see it for yourselves, guys. It sounds like some really interesting activities getting together, all the big minds, and sort of thinking about these areas and talking about them, which is what fantasy we're, animation, which you is might what say. we're all up for uh, on this podcast. Um, thank you guys for joining us for another week. Uh, I don't know why you gendered you all, audience. Thank you all people for listening um, this week. Uh, we've been Fantasy Animation. You can find us at fantasy-animation.org as well as on Twitter at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. Um, you've probably heard us plug something like this already, but do come along to the screening series that we're running um, throughout uh, 2019 to 2020 at the C uh, Cinema Museum. Um, I imagine go to the Cinema Museum website. It's not quite up and running when I'm recording this, but I'm sure you can find it out there. Um, this has been us for another week. Chris, yep. thanks very much as always. Thank you. Let's go and get grounded. Let's get, let's get grounded. Let's uh, get see grounded. you later and goodbye. Bye. Goodbye.